Well, welcome everybody to a, a new edition of the Art Business Podcast. And I'm going to say now before I forget at the end that I think I'm going to take a break like um, most people in the art world do through August. Um, and um, so, so this will be the, the when I this will be the last one I think until September. Uh, so please look out for my notifications after that. My guest today, and and it's 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 a lovely guest to have. I think for the the, the final one before the break, is Paola Lucente, um, and she's a a, a London-based independent um, curator uh, with her bachelor's in visual art and a, a master's degree in a in a really interesting subject that we might talk about: art management psychology. And Paola worked several years in the contemporary art scene. Uh, for big names like the uh, Zabludowicz Collection in London, uh, the Guggenheim Museum, the Marion Goodman Gallery, um, Scope and Volta Art Fairs in New York. She's now director and curator of Procreate, a UK-based organisation, uh, which supports the professional development of contemporary artists who are also um, mothers and others, I think, <laughs> working across uh, different disciplines. So welcome, Paula, uh, to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I'm going to start with the usual um, opening question, which um, tells us more about your, 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 yourself and your, your, your kind of position in the art world, if you like, and your outlooks. Um, you know, do you have a, any kind of favourite urban location? And, and if so, why? Well, uh, with the risk um, of being banal as, as Italian, I would say Rome. Uh, but because um has a special place in my heart. Um, I've been, um, I born in a very small seaside city, Bari, which you may know because of it. it's a touristic destination, pretty hot at the moment in Puglia. And um, I've studied classical uh, studies. I did the Liceo Classico, which is based on Greek and, and uh, Latin, especially. And um, as, as many, you know, people in high school, uh, you, you you still don't know who you're going to be, what you're going to do. Um, but the only thing I knew is that I had to live in Rome and I had to to be part of um, the Roman life. Uh, so um, basically, the very first time that I went to Rome, it was during the uh, last, um, the final year uh, trip during my last year in high school. And uh, I literally collapsed in front of the Colosseum. Um, so I guess I had that, well, it's a, a well-known the Stendhal uh, syndrome. I'm, I'm sure like you know about it. It's this kind of a phenomenon um, that is referred to as, as an art attack, basically. It's, um, and I think Stendhal was um, a writer and uh, it's basically when you have a physical um, sensation, a very strong sensation in front of a piece of art. And, and and in fact, that was the sign for me that um, I was very attracted and, and intimidated by the, the, this piece of architecture. Um, then, obviously, I, I studied art history and um, it seemed like the reasonable choice for me to go and, and live in Rome for many years. So it has a special place in that sense. I knew every little bit of architecture, every little bit of museums, statues. It's, it, it's the place that it's for me like the ideal city, although I would never live there. So I would just only go and visit because after two years living there, like I've discovered obviously like how difficult it is to, to navigate a city like that. And um, especially after New York and London, it's it's a city where actually I wouldn't be able to live, but but it's uh, I think my favorite city in the world. Well, that's interesting because um, I've never been asked this, but I would my answer would also be Rome. Okay. Um, it's difficult. It's always difficult to answer questions about favorite yeah. things because, um, you know, it often depends on your mood. And there are certainly other cities in the world, including where I live in London, um, you know, but for different reasons, really. But Rome, Rome is always my kind of go to place, partly because I, you know, I did some I, when I was uh, researching my PhD, that was mainly in the Bay of Naples. Um oh. I, I would go up to Rome to study at the British School of Art, which has a really good classical archaeology library. So like you, I'm a classicist as well, but, but you know, yeah. originally. Um, and yeah, and I, one wouldn't want to be in Rome now, though, um, judging by some of the things people are saying about the heat. Yeah, yeah the heat. <laughs> and um, but the Colosseum, how, I've never heard of the. I've always wondered if there was a name for this, this overwhelming artistic experience that you've 
so eloquently described in front of the Colosseum of all places and Stendhal as in the author yeah yeah I mean I've never known like after I researched also because when I went to Rome and I brought my husband who is an architect for the first time in Rome he collapsed in front of the um St. Peter's um Baldacchino so the oh, wow. altar um, the Bernini Baldacchino. Yeah, yeah, the Bernini Baldacchino, exactly, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful piece of architecture, yes. obviously. Um, he collapsed. And then I remember that I did collapse, like when I was a teenager. So by talking about it, we were like, wait a minute. I mean, I'm sure that there is a name about it. And it typically, what I researched at the time is that it's also connected also with maybe like a travel. So you've been traveling, you've been also exhausted probably because you've been like maybe walking around the city for a while. But um, so it can be also that it's related to, to like a physical um, weakness in that moment, or perhaps like you need some water or some some food. <laughs> but it is also um, so there are different ones because some of them is overwhelming when you see too many work of art. So after a museum visit, for instance, particularly in the Louvre, I, I know there are like so many cases after you see the Louvre. But Rome is one of the city where many people do experience this and um, syndrome because. It's a city that you keep studying since you are a child. So you have so many, you know them, you know the Colosseum, you know this story. So it's like it's the expectations you have about this building and then you finally see them. And, and the, the, the mystosity, obviously, of the, the building in front of you. So it's, it's a typical thing, apparently, especially in Rome and in front of uh, big architecture, famous um, uh, buildings or structures yeah and it's something people often don't talk about which is that spiritual quality perhaps one could call it that buildings like uh, or art and architecture has and yeah. I was just thinking it's quite interesting that you've got the Colosseum which obviously you know was a place where many people and animals have lost their lives hello yeah, so sorry, a little interruption there. Um, so, so yeah, we were talking about this experience. Um, we might call it spiritual or more psychological. That the Colosseum and the and the Baldacchino Benini that your 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 husband um, yeah. caps in front of, they're they're opposites really. They're binary opposites. So, Colosseum obviously is um, uh, you know, is almost like a symbol of evil in modern times, where so many animals and people lost their lives, and of course, it has that Christian yeah. history, um, which is partly potentially mythological according to some people but obviously for christian people it it is also a, a religious sacred site isn't it where i think the pope visits it once a year i'm just thinking that there's something in that i think um uh, and the baldacchino in st peter's is after all right above the famous tomb of st, of, of st. peter so you know yeah. depending on your religious or other beliefs i think that sometimes these things can have an effect that isn't just about the visuals but about the actual spirit of place if you like uh the the, the genius loki <laughs> um so that that's a, that's another conversation i guess but um do you have any kind of do you like the countryside or the or the seaside do you have any kind of special place where you escape the the, the city Yeah, uh, I do like the countryside, although obviously I come from a seaside location, so I, I mostly Sorry. love um, seaside. But, um, and again, um, I, I never thought, when you sent the question, I never thought that I was so attached to my old um, country, my own um, birthland. But um, where I come from, Puglia, um, there is a particularly um, area which is between Bari. Uh, the the capital and uh, Brindisi Lecce, the very end of the the hill of the book, if you want to, um, and it's called La Valle d'Itria, and it's like this flat, beautiful countryside that hangs on an amazing, beautiful sea. But it's a basically it's a it's a, a flat um, area um, with thousands, not millions, perhaps, of of olive trees, and um, there are very small. Um, buildings called the Trulli. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. Yeah, I've, I've um, visited them. I visited them and I know Bari as well. <laughs> so so I, I come from Bari originally, yeah. but that particularly bit of land um, yes. where Albelo is, like there are the Masserie, these amazing old farms from the 1600s who are now 
I mean, luxury, luxury, luxury uh, hotels, uh, five star hotels where Madonna spends his uh, summer, perhaps, um, and the Beckhams. Uh, but um, this truly, um, there is this bit of like Loco Rotondo and and uh, Albero Bello, where these small um, um, white stones coned roofs, uh, coned roofs, like kind of uh, buildings, very small. Mm -hmm. um, they're very peculiar to the area, so. They're unique, really, and they've been around for many, many hundreds of years. Um, the, the very first one we can find is from the 1600s, but they think that they're kind of like very back in the event from the medieval time. And they used to be, um, yeah, I guess, farmers' um, houses, but sometimes they use, they're so small that they were used during the, the heat waves and during the summer times to, for the farmers to leave their tools and, and, and find some... Um, um, some um, shadow and they're really 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 um, climatically they're very um, fresh inside and cool inside so they keep the 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 the, 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 the temperature uh, low during the you know August and during the very um, high temperature outside so there is Alberobello and the Masseria so I guess that's that's the the bit in the world. I travel the world, but like, um, I, I think in my heart, that's my favorite place if I have to name one. Yeah, I think it's often a, a place you remember from maybe your childhood or when you're a younger person. And But I, I can still now, when you describe it, I can remember, although it was over 20 years ago, I was down there um, in, in, in what we call Apulia, you call Puglia. Um, and um, I still quite often see like a, a Puglian wine and uh, and that reminds me as as wines can do of, of that locale. It's beautiful. And Bari, I remember, um, I think it was, um, isn't it, doesn't it have some claim to, to the burial of St. Nicholas, who's Santa Claus, our Father Christmas? I think St. Nicholas is uh, associated with Bari. Yeah, Father Christmas, yeah. Father Christmas <laughs> came, I guess, later on. Yeah. But originally it's at St. Nicholas. Yeah. Him. I, mean, I, hmm. I think it's also because, hopefully I'm right, but I think it's because there is one of particularly uh, miracles that it's recalled. Three of them are very famous, but one of them it was that uh, he brought um, gifts to three uh, very poor children. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess um, also because sometimes you can find in very old paintings, San Nicolas bringing gift to children. So maybe, I mm -hmm. don't know when it started, him, uh, but um, he's associated with San Nicolas. And then I guess in Germany, they have San Nicolaus. San Nicolaus is mm. absolutely the same that rings uh, on the 6th of December. It's not for us. It's San Nicolas doesn't bring a gift to children on the 6th. Interesting. But, um, yep. So it's Natal, it's something else. Uh, but I guess because obviously we are a Catholic country, so there is not a, there is no saint or nobody that really brings. So it's a commercial thing. It's Babbo Natale from Coca-Cola, literally. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Unless there is La Befana, who is this kind of witch. But again, it's it's a pagan thing. It's not a Catholic thing. So, But it reminds, I guess, the three uh, kings um, giving gifts to jesus it's so interesting isn't it the way those pagan older myths that have been um yeah. communicated orally generation to generation that they're then christianized or you know that there's always these very interesting underlying um myth myths behind them and mythology is amazing because it's not written down and therefore it can change in different places and at different times it's it's, it's great and i i remember um uh the the architecture of uh, Puglia, of course, there's these wonderful Romanesque, uh, like we might say Norman buildings of the normal period for the listeners, that's like 1000 to say 1200 CE, yeah. uh, that sort of period. And they're really, really beautiful, very, very plain um, yeah. buildings. I remember churches, Romanesque churches in Puglia. Um, so so that leads me to my next question. You, you've already spoken about your re response to the, the Stendhal reaction to the Colosseum, but do you, is, would that also be your favourite piece of architecture or is there another building you might think of if you had to choose one? It, it may be ancient, it may be modern. It's definitely modern. Again, those are difficult questions because for us people working in the arts, it's like you can name many of them, but you have to pick one, so it's very difficult. And I also married an architect and I have so many friends, um, architects, so everybody thinks I'm one of them, but I'm not, <laughs> but I love architecture. To be honest with you, I did apply to architecture school um, before doing art history because I didn't know, again, after high school, I think 
if you work, if you love the arts, then and unless you absolutely know what your route is going, what your journey is going to be, like you try many things. So I did try to study architecture, but I failed the test, so I didn't. <laughs> um, because uh, you have to do a test in Italy; not everybody can um, enter architecture school. Um, but but I at least was... you then married an architect, so it's... <laughs> enough. Uh, but I would say the Guggenheim Museum. Um, the New it's York, New York one, the New York one. I mean, all of them are, are beautiful. I've seen two of them, uh, but uh, um, three of them, uh, the, the one in Venice as well. But um, the one in New York, it, it, again, it's very close to my heart. I've spent the best year of my life there. Um, mm. After university, after my master, I did one year uh, internship at the Guggenheim Museum. Yes, I was 23. I wow. literally, it was like my lucky year, I was chosen to do a like one year internship um, in the curatorial department uh, at the Guggenheim Museum. So it was like a magical moment for me. I was only, yeah, 23. Um, and just by being there and being, uh, even at night when nobody was there, like going around <laughs> um, because I had a meeting or something to do, like being able to look around um, and uh, it's an amazing building. I mean, thinking about it's 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 an art piece itself. Obviously, when it was um, thought and designed by um, Wright, um, he it was meant to be like a container of arts, but it's it's itself is it's, it's an art piece. Obviously, um, at that time, yeah, it gives me goosebumps. I mean, when I every time I go there, my favorite bit is like going up on the rotunda and then be at the bit at the top top of the stairs the, the spiral ramp that runs all the way up it's yeah. not uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing um but um i found if i have to be critical a little bit the little small rooms a bit constrictive sometimes yes. they have um i remember seeing an exhibition it was one of the kandinsky one and they had huge pieces and i think they forced them a little bit in these rooms yes so the, the the art around the rotunda. So it's not for every every kind of art. So I think that was a little bit of a of a mistake in these small rooms. But sometimes they're very good into like putting like very small pieces. And sometimes there is a permanent collection, so they know what's good there, and they don't change so much around. Mm -hmm. While they use for temporary, obviously, exhibition more the rotunda. And yeah, it's very difficult finding that balance, isn't it, between a beautiful building that is an art gallery. Um, and and uh, you know this you 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 as a classicist will know how Vitruvius, who wrote on architecture two thousand years ago for the Emperor Augustus, he 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 has this very famous statement that uh, good architecture is fifty percent utility utility and fifty percent aesthetic, and it's getting that balance right, isn't it? And I I think that the Frank Gehry uh, Guggenheim in Bilbao was also criticised for its spaces as well. Um, I've been to both of them and um, I think it depends, you know, we'll talk about your curatorial uh, outlook later, maybe, but um, <clears throat> I think it's a challenge to curators and, and, and a good curator should be able to work, I, I believe, in any space. And But I certainly remember, <clears throat> I think when I visited the Frank, the, the Wright Guggenheim in New York, they had an exhibition of, um, it was, uh, you may even remember it, it was uh, Latin American Baroque altarpieces and they were huge. And yeah. but they they were all the way up the spiral ramp, and it was quite remarkable actually that to, to sit because that, that creates a very different viewing experience from another rectangular or square room in the national in the Tate in say Tate Modern. And again, yeah. it's interesting because they have, but as in many institutions, different curators. So by the end of my um, period there, I could tell which curator were thinking about because some <laughs> of them really, really play their own the building um, rather than forcing artworks in the building and um you could tell who the curator was um at that time i worked for an amazing curator she's still around she's i guess the curator of the mass mocha now in massachusetts okay. um susan cross and the only thing i remember about that year is that the first day she met me she's like you will never make coffees here i really need you get this <laughs> book read them translate and get back to me tomorrow <laughs> like Wow. okay fine like it was the most amazing experience of my life like I really I was really really um, um I've, I've learned so much so much really uh yeah. at the Guggenheim we we on the MA Art Business at Southern Business Institute of Art where I'm program director um 
we 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 sponsor uh, a student for the Venice Guggenheim every year for their internship, and um, they look. I've had such good reports back from there as well that they they're not just there to make the coffee; that they they do every, a little bit of everything, um, and and they learn so much from that. Um, uh, so, Paula, um, moving on to, do you, are you are you a music lover, and what kind of music do you tend to listen to? You know, what's on your playlist at the moment? Maybe I could ask. The moment, yes, because it's very difficult. It depends on the mood, on the exactly. and the age of. Um, especially now, um, my my child, my children start to listen what I listen to. Um, I'm really eclectic. I go from jazz to classical music to contemporary classical music. I don't know if you know these Italians. There is a um, a Levi or an Audi or yes. um, uh, there is also like an amazing jazz, uh, contemporary jazz. Um, yeah players uh but at the moment my <laughs> child and I, I'm, I'm upset we are obsessed with the maniskin still uh <laughs> like this kind of a uh, rock band that uh won the Euro, eurovision some years ago and there's literally um out there but like um even like the 90s sometimes i would just li listen to verve blur um <laughs> you know old 90s good um, um hour you know like yes. uh, old, um Funnily enough, Blur, uh, they've just brought out a new album, they're Brit Britpop, and just to remind uh, listeners, because um, a lot of a lot of like like a lot of my students weren't obviously even born in the nineties, but this was the period, of course, that we in 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 London we had the well in 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 Britain we had this Britpop, which include bands like Blur, uh, Oasis, and um, Pulp, yeah. and Suede, and and so on. Yeah. But we all they were very much going uh, parallels with the young British artists, people like Damon Hirst and Rachel White Reed, Tracy Emin. So these two things went together, and they were often friends. So you know, um, Damon Hirst notoriously did a video, uh, quite a controversial one for for Blur. Um, so they wow. were working together, and I I remember the nineties in London has been so exciting because everything was coming together. We had a young socialist prime minister called tony blair who we look uh, back on with that. slightly <laughs> different opinions but you know it was it really was a period which actually resurrected london i think as a contemporary art center and then we had the opening of tate in yeah. 2000 and that okay. came on top of that so so yeah blur uh, and, and they played last night near me near where i live in hammersmith i didn't go but they've just brought a new album out and of course they're now not old men, but they're middle aged. Oh, and, no, no. And uh, but it's also nice to to let my well, my child now the big one is six and he's really into rock. Really, and so yeah. he's growing long hair like he's uh, like he's six years old. That's incredible. To play guitar and he wants to be a rock uh, singer. It's quite good, I have to say. That so yeah, it's nice to be with him, like old school. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Old. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, you've been talking about you're already talking about your children on the podcast, um, uh, Paolo. And I know I know that this this is one of the reasons why this very much connects with the um, with the the work that you're now doing. But we'll come to that in a moment, because I, I just wanted to ask that final question. I ask everyone, can, do you, you've already talked about, you know, when you're a young person, maybe um, the Colosseum and the Stendhal effect in front of the Colosseum. Um, can can you do you have an, what's your earliest memory of realizing that there's a thing called art? You know, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's also the question. I could read the question in different ways. In a sense that obviously, as Italian, you are surrounded by art. So yeah. you go to church and see old paintings. Museums are around you. Although where I come from, Bari. We had no knowledge or no um, experience of a, contem a contemporary art scene. Oh. And funny enough, I did specialize in contemporary art. Um, so I would say the very first time that I started to uh, think about that, that could be my thing and I appreciate art. It was when I didn't pass um, an art um, class during mm -hmm. high school. Very funny. Because in Italy, I don't know if the system is the same, but you need to pass pretty much all the classes from one year to another one. But if you don't pass up to four, you lose the year. You have to repeat the year. But up to three, you can basically study all summer and give an exam in September. And unless you're absolutely terrible, then they let you pass anyway. But the problem is that you study all the summer. So that year, for the first time in my life, I didn't pass the art class. <laughs> 
Um, and to be honest with you, like the teacher was a bit of a, um, like a, a goofy person. Like I, I never took her seriously. And and then that's why I think like they, she always like really didn't like me. Um, but anyway, that summer I was like maybe 13. I really passed it in, in, in like, like looking at, truly looking at my art history book. And, and I appreciate it very much because I had to, I had to take the time. I was a busy bee during uh, high school. So I was like, um, like a, a singer as well, an actress, uh, like doing many things. So I didn't really have leave so much time for studying. So I guess that summer and that book in particularly really gave me the, the start into thinking that that could be something that I could uh, focus on. And, and in fact, after high school, I did study visual art. And at that time, unfortunately, I was specializing in something I knew there was nothing to to do after that in my city, and that's why I left and moved to Rome. But interesting, interestingly enough, after having worked outside in in Rome and New York, I was called a few years ago to start up and set up the very first contemporary art um, permanent art space in Bari, and now it's still open. And I've run quite a few programs for a few years, curated um, two or three years of the arts program. And it's now open. It's um, it's called Spazio Mura, and it's in the center of the city. And they have a really nice um, contemporary art program. That seems to be a pattern in Italy, doesn't it? Because we're coming back to Rome, of course. We had the uh, um, we had Mazzi opening up. What was it about twenty years ago or so? Um, the Zaha Hadid building. There's architecture overlapping again with art. Um, so so yeah, and I mean people talk about many Italians uh, colleagues and friends that I speak to they all tend to say that same thing that you know we have this weight of the past of renaissance and even ancient art with us as we grow up and um, uh, I've even heard people be quite critical of the lack of support sometimes for working contemporary artists in Italy and that they need more institutions and more 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 support so and I think that's something that's begun to happen um, in Italy and even you know working in the I work obviously more with um, the commercial art world and I uh, you know you will know this that some of the well-known Italian uh, old master dealers um, began to about 10 years ago began to start showing like modern and contemporary art as well as um, uh, as well as old masters and that that was partly a, a fiscal reason to do with you know the this 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 you know the law uh, the laws coming in that would stop these things being a, to be exported out of Italy, like old masters. Uh, it was partly response to that, but I, it seemed to have a really positive effect on bringing to the attention, uh, you know, that great arte povera and sort of post-war Italian art, but also contemporary Italian yeah. art. So it's great that you were involved in setting up of a contemporary gallery in in Bari. What year was that, Paola? It was 2000, so it was one year before my son born, 2016, possibly. Yeah, yeah. 2016. Um, we, we, but it was, again, it was like a umbando, so it was like a grant um, uh, a grant offered by the local authorities, Puglia. And these years, like between 2013, 2016, were particularly prolific. There were so many new things coming up, and so many friends of mine, they came back, and brought back their experience from all over the world and they opened up quite a few different businesses. So that museum, that that space, it's still a public space because it's one of the main uh, center space in the old city. But um, the the local authorities started to, um, to be supported and helped and started to give in the hands of private um, uh, companies and private funders um, those buildings. So uh, we won, so I wrote basically the, the 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 curatorial and the artistic program for the first four years, and then we were chosen as the um, the best uh, proposal. So we took over the building, and they're still there. It's the hub in Bari. Uh, they're still Fantastic. there. Building, yeah. It's great that you were a part of that movement towards contemporary. And I think this was a global thing that you know from about two thousand. I think with the in London with the opening of Tate Modern and the. The, the YBAs began to become more internationally renowned. Um, yeah. And um, I think generally, you know, we we saw what happened in the art market. Suddenly there are these um, black tie evening event auctions for contemporary art. A lot of people don't realize what it was like before that, you know, our contemporary art was a, uh, was almost like, was a very internal thing. It was, it was almost sort of, um, 
it was almost like what we call a closed shop. And I, I think it's with artists like Hearst, and I think it's become a lot more commercial. Um, so or, or not commercial in a good sense, if you like. It's easy for people to look at yeah. some of this art compared yeah. to the art that I was looking at in like the 80s, 90s. So I think it's just a general thing that once you've got, you know, wealthy people who are art collectors getting interested in buying contemporary art, I think that feeds in it's a two-way thing isn't it it's a symbiotic relationship between the public art world so contemporary arts art galleries open up more public galleries simply because of the interest in wealthy collectors as well you know they're, they're combined um so 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 then you your master's degree in art management psychology uh at the sapienza university very famous university of course in rome and can you tell us a little bit about that experience and and, and how it might have informed and affected your future career paula yeah, I have to say now, and also like speaking with you and, and listening to my story, sometimes I do listen to what I say, <laughs> that my career path has been also um, shaped by serendipity in a sense that sometimes things happened to me and I kind of picked and choose and, and jumped on opportunities as, as they came. So not particularly didn't really have like a trajectory or at least like, like, like a fix or like a clear trajectory after my university. But I knew that I wanted to work in, in the arts and but I didn't know in what kind of capacity. So when I moved to Rome and I applied here and there to different masters at, uh, and I was very lucky to be selected for the very first edition of this master art management psychology mm -hmm. because La Sapienza was collaborating at that time with, with Columbia, Columbia University in New York. So they were experimenting this uh, course and perhaps like I, I didn't research, maybe, maybe there are still now, but um, at that time uh, there was art, art um, therapy, art psychotherapy. So um, this very first, um, I guess, program was trying to um, mix basically the arts with the science and introduce us students to um, the psychology and the um, cogn cognitive neuroscience um, mm -hmm. of, of how we generate um, ideas, we appreciate beauty and um, how we navigate uh, things. And therefore, um, there was a mix of lots of uh, um, psychology classes, but uh, there were a lot of people coming from the professional art world and they would show us how to use it if you were a curator and how to make sure that your audience will understand you better or how to write better you know, panels when you describe um, what the artworks are about. So, and there was also design, how, design, how to design um, you know, the um, installations for, uh, for the arts. So it was very interesting because you could you could tell you could start from like thinking about how we think and how we um, navigate things and how you can make an improved experience for your audience. Um, so I, I guess it was a successful one. Obviously, we were like uh, the, the pilots, basically the pilot um, experiment. But they had quite few editions after that. And at the end of um, the, the master, there was an internship and you had to choose and pick up a museum or an institution. So of course, everybody stayed in Rome, but I did want to create that connection with New York. So what I thought is like, let me jump now and let me see if I can create a connection with Columbia University and I'll be working in New York. And that was, so I've asked help what to, I've asked, asked help to the, one of the director of the masters and he had connections at the Metropolitan, Guggenheim and MoMA. Although he said, I'm not going to choose. I can introduce you, you send your CV, they have their selections. If you're lucky enough, we'll write up like, like a sponsorship or something, but I have nothing to do with the selection. And I said like, okay, I'll try anyway. And I did apply, but because I didn't hear anything from them. So I did apply in May. And we're supposed to do like a, at least a three months internship between May and September and graduate in September. But nobody called me for an interview or anything. So I just decided to go for the summer in New York and, and work there. So I did travel. I went to New York. I, I was in New York. And one day they called me from the Guggenheim. They're like, are you happy to come for an interview? I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so I went to the Guggenheim and they, they we, I did an interview. I was already there. And I guess that was also like my luck in a sense that probably if they would call me from Italy, my English was terrible at that time. So 
I think I got the internship because I was there. So that that's what I think it happened because I probably wouldn't have got it if I was in Italy. And they told me, well, good. In, within two weeks, you start uh, the internship. And I was like, but I don't have a visa. So then obviously it was a post um, uh, world after, you know, the 9-11. Um, it was very difficult to get a visa, but they they gave me like a first class, you know, ticket to uh, the embassy, embassy. So they sponsored me and I was there basically again in two, three weeks. Um, so it was That's... very, very, the master really, really changed my life in that sense. Um, I still use a lot of techniques. It's good. I got interested in psychology as well. And I feel that in everything I do, I try to also really think about the audience first. And then and then I would research the team or I would um, design the exhibition. Nice example of serendipity, which is a word that you used earlier. I was going to ask you, um, is there an Italian equivalent for that very English word, I think, serendipity? No, I don't know. No. no. <laughs> it's a great I word. Think, I think we use it sometimes. And I think there was a movie that it was in the 90s, probably, oh. that gave us the, or at least brought the concept out. And since then, I think my 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 generation uses. And at the serendipity, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think it was first used even by Horace Walpole, um, the you know the Gothic revivalist in the 18th century, as I understand it. You'd have to look up the etymology of the words, but it's a great word because, as you say, it just means those moments in life where things come together just by accident. I often say to my students, the art world isn't like other careers that you know there are career paths everywhere else but the art world just doesn't have an obvious career path and a lot of it is to do with serendipity you know you meet someone one day who you you know and they say oh we're looking for someone just like you that the jobs are often aren't advertised <laughs> um uh, but but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nepotism at work that there's something bad with that i think a lot of it is just basically goodwill and just knowing the right people so hence the importance i keep emphasizing to my students who since lockdown occurred, I think a lot of younger people are not so good at getting out there, not so confident at getting out there and networking, but it is really, really important. So any any current or future students listening to this podcast, you know, do do try and build up confidence to go around galleries on a Saturday morning and and, and talk to curators. They're usually very, very happy to talk to you and give you advice. I, I'm sure Paula's had this situation in her own experience as a curator with a younger person maybe coming in and talking with them <laughs> and, and, and another thing Paolo you said about the the um degree uh, in art management psychology you talk about um about panels information that you put on panels when you're a curator for the for the visitor uh signage if you like um I have noticed in the in contemporary art exhibitions and be they public exhibitions like Tate or MoMA or um or even in private galleries that what we call art speak which was a very difficult language that contemporary art critics were taught at university to use this very, very difficult language that the general public can't understand. I think that that's been broken down a little bit. I don't know if you have any views on whether you think signage should be directed at the ordinary person, if you like, or the interested person who isn't necessarily trained in art, or whether it should be really aimed at people who really understand art terminology. Well, and, and that's, again, you have different kind of curators as well. Um, and, and thank God, um, also, like, in, in big organizations, in big museums, they have a, a specific department, the interpretation department, that specifically look at signages and how to talk to different audiences. So I am a democratic, I, I love the democracy. So personally, I appreciate when they give three different levels. Sometimes you can give up to three different levels. So the very... Um, and you see at dates sometimes. So they will give you like um, a general panel when they give you like a very specific and few information, then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper depending on how much you want to hear about and how much you understand about art. So I think, again, it's uh, it's art became culture, as you said, it's not anymore like an elite thing. And I would I will love, you know, for my father to understand what he's looking at and appreciate if he can and get some information and then for the, Acad academic people to just go deeper and understand even more and further behind what the curator wants to say, for instance. So yes. personally, I do appreciate when curators make the effort. 
Yeah, I think it's a happy medium between using the correct terminology, but not overusing it so that people just give up reading reading it. Um, sure. There is a happy yeah. medium, and I, I yeah. think I think sometimes audio guides are very good at good at using normal, you know, everyday yeah. language yeah. to take people around artists yeah, as language. well. Yeah, um, and 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 you also talked about um, so one of my one of my current dissertation students is um, Derek is um, he's researching uh, the use of of art as therapy for people with mental health problems, and again this has grown to a certain extent out of the pandemic and lockdowns where we've heard that a lot of particularly younger people are now suffering from mental uh, stress and so on, and he he's kind of investigating that issue of how art can um can be used maybe to um, and even the creation of art can be used to, for people with mental health problems i don't i don't know whether you've got any any comments on that does it ever come up in your own curatorial work um i, I think one of his points was for example that there's quite a lot of work done with um people with other kinds of disability if i can use that term like you know uh, uh maybe deaf people people who with hard of hearing uh, are taken around galleries with people, uh, you know, with sign language and so on. Uh, but but he he says it's very you don't often hear about uh, curated tours for people with mental health problems. <laughs> it's a difficult subject, obviously, uh, because you're you don't want to interfere with someone's um, psychological medication. Um, but but I, are art galleries there to help people with their general mental health state, including people who don't have mental health problems? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you see often more and more around definitely tour for um, deaf people or yes. people with disabilities. So this is a common thing. Obviously, it's very expensive because you have to pay people and you have to train people to do so. But some galleries, they do. They're, they're, they're looking to be more inclusive and uh, diverse in that sense. Uh, there are quite few organizations and they organize tours, specific um, um, classes as well, because again, art therapy, like you can either like do it. So lots of um, organizations, they do use art therapy in order to, um, to activate more your left side, I guess, of the brain, which is like the creative part. And that helps apparently with so many different things, starting from mood to um, different me mental health um, issues. I do work, I know this just because I, I, I happen to live on top of um, Headways, and they are an amazing organization that works with people that had um, uh, brain damages and traumas, uh, but physical traumas. So they are, they are disabled people, especially. And they do create lots of, they do art classes, but they bring people around to see exhibitions. Um, I've never been involved, but there must be a way to talk to them in a way that touches them in a different, or heals them in a different way. Mm. Maybe it's a development that we will, you know, which is why my students doing the research on this, maybe it's something that we will see developing more in the future. So, um, so Paolo, in, 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 I think in June, I think you did, you worked for several years for the uh, London collection, the, Z the Zabludovitz collection, and you we, you might want to bring some of that experience into the, the what we're going to talk about now, which is that in June 2018, which is, I think is five years ago now, uh, you became director and curator of uh, this organisation called uh, Procreate. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the foundation of Procreate, which I believe was in 2013, uh, and maybe something about its business model, and then then we can talk more about what its you know its mission, or maybe you can tell us now what its mission is, and maybe then talk a little bit about how it works as a as a business, if you like. Yes, so um, the um, organization was founded in uh, 2013, as you said, and by my uh, colleague, dear friends, Diana Gravina. She's the founder and co-director and artistic director of the organization. And it's an organization that now supports um, hundreds of uh, women artists who have a caring responsibility, women and self-identified women and non-binary artists as well, and some fathers as well, I'll tell you more about later. Um, but the way it was, it was created by Diana, and she, it was inspired basically by her own uh, pregnancy experience, and it was born out of um, the lack of, of, of support and representation for, for women artists going through the same experience of motherhood. So um, we primarily provide platforms and space for the uh, 
production of works that would not otherwise be um, created. And at the moment we've developed and uh, run quite few projects. So um, one of them, and it's uh, one of the very uh, successful one at the moment is the Mother House Studios, where we, I am in at the moment. Um, and this is um, a, an artist studio space um, shared by artists with integrated childcare. So we do provide childcare for um, artists with caring responsibility who wants to come back to work produce art while taking care of their children. And perhaps they don't have the space at home or they're not able to do anything because their child needs constantly attention for them, from them. But by being this here, um, they have their own space and the children have an amazing um, children area uh, where they can uh, explore, create themselves and, and play. Um, and we have facilitators on site to take care of the children, although the spaces are interconnected so the children can go in and out the working space. I can show you around if you want. It's yes, a unique please. model in the world. It doesn't exist. It seems like a very simple thing to set up. It's not, but and, and, and therefore it doesn't exist. Uh, so we're still you know, in an experimental phase in a sense that we're tr trying out a few things um, uh, as they come, uh, but, um, we've been here for two years, and although we have a bumpy road behind and, and in front of us, it's it's an amazing space where to work and uh, come with your children. So if you want where, to show you Yeah, please do. And can you remind us the lo the location in London of Mother House? So uh, it's Catford in Lewisham, London, mm -hmm. south of uh, the river in Lewisham. That's and really interesting because like that area of London in the southeast, it's not doesn't immediately come to mind when you think about art and contemporary art. I think you all agree with that. So it's in a really, really interesting location. Exactly. But uh, we have discovered that many people in the arts, so from like starting from artists, but also curators, director of organizations, they're all around here. They moved yes. after pandemics because of yes. course houses are still um fairly, let's say like um, um uh, less less expensive than north of the river. But it's be, it became like an, an amazing creatively um, area. There is for a steel, there is a Horniman Museum next to it and all small pockets of uh, small little kind of villages, you know, Dalich and so many other small communities. And they all feed into Catford because it's the center. Yes. And where we are, we were very lucky because we found this huge, um, I'll show you now, it's a 500 square meters um, area that yes. we divide in two spaces and um and it's in the center of Catford where everybody has to pass by because there is a cinema downstairs there are restaurants so it's very nice also it's it's a nice uh, point where everybody meet basically and, I'll and give it's, you a the, it's so that area of London where you um when I used to drive down to visit my mother who lived in Gravesend on the Thames estuary and she's rest in yeah. peace now but um we used to drive around the south circular which went through both dulwich which of course has a famous old master gallery um and then and then you drive through catford which which is very obviously obviously quite working class area when you when you drive through it if i can say that um so it's typical of london that you move from a kind of high culture area to a what is apparently popular culture or low culture area so i think it's and i isn't is the black cat still there yes, you know which is a, a which is yeah. a <laughs> which is like the pun on Catford, obviously, yeah. that's still there. Exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, no, do show us around. And remember yeah, yeah. that some of our people are listening on audio. So describe what you're showing us, please. Yeah, so at the moment, obviously, I close myself in the, the only office we have because we tend <laughs> to be working all together. And I'll show you the main co-working space. I'll turn the camera around. Hopefully oh, wow. Nursing. So, so you can find here and there some, you know, desks with our artists in residence. So we have at the moment a group of 30 artists. Oh, yes. That's brilliant. Um, so it basically looks just for the listeners, if who aren't watching this on YouTube, and you know, you can take a look at this on YouTube. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast time. So I, I'll, I'll perhaps put some time points in for you. But um, it's an incredible space, uh, you know, all open plan with um, individual desks, uh, typical artist studio floors where you can spill paint and to other materials um, <laughs> and lots of space really for people yeah. um, and there's windows with um, 
yeah, light from different directions, and natural light. So oh, just going through a door now into another, yeah, another huge space. Yes, so it's a no-shoe zone, as you can see. <laughs> Take your shoes off. <laughs> and this is where the kids are. It's a boat. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there are the children children at, uh, at play and at work. And so they, you're literally absorbing the children's experience into the artist's experience. Yes. So now it's particular time, I guess. It's like some of them are nothing and some of them are probably eating. Yeah. We have a common kitchen that we use together. Uh, but we usually have seven to eight children per day. Yes. All day. Um, and then we have one or two facilitators, basically, um, on site. They make sure that nothing happens, but they don't block children. They don't, we're not like a crash or like a nursery where you have to, you know, keep the children separated from yes. the family. So the idea yes. is that you can work, you can still create. Um, if you don't want to separate yourself from your child, you don't have yes. to. Um, your child can go back and forth. And that's how, um, and, and why and how uh, basically I work myself, because literally my second daughter, because... I was dreaming this place when I was um, uh, pregnant and my, my child was six months, but we couldn't make it. So we received funds a bit later. Um, although I bring him here, but he's six now. So he's like kind of like an older This is the rock, This is the rock star, future rock star. <laughs> but the little one, Dorotea, she, she literally born here because I signed the contract the day before giving birth. I was in the hospital and we had to start the construction. <laughs> The day before, I was like doing some checks, and I was going to go for a, for an induction the day after, and I had to sign the papers and send the paper to to start. Um, and then, luckily enough, my 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 husband architect architect took over, so he was <laughs> running the works here the day after, and I joined a week after, literally with my baby on, you know, on the sling, and uh, was coming here basically weekly, and she started to work with me <laughs> uh, since lovely. she was one month and a half. So she's been here like uh, since then. That's lovely. And um, uh, uh, can you talk about maybe some of the other um, people that have um, that have um, you know appreciated this this space? And uh, is it appreciated? Or is there a lot of interest in in the mother house space? It is. It is. It's since we opened. So the originally uh, the idea was uh, created and piloted by Diana in two thousand sixteen. Mm -hmm. And she, they found at that time an amazing space with with a huge uh, garden uh, in uh, Waterloo, uh, mm -hmm. London. And but it was a temporary space. It was just a one month pilot experiment, and they had thirty five artists at that time. Um, so she started this kind of like the community basically back then. So then people started to talk about it, and so we um, we wanted to create like a permanent space. So she did three pilots. And the story is that basically in 2016, sorry, 2018, when my son was six months old um, and I was on maternity leave, I, I truly wanted to be part again of a community. I didn't want to be by myself. I needed to, to speak with people that were, you know, like um, that had my say, the same interests as yeah. me. So it's like, I, I really want to speak with curators, artists. I want to find mothers who, who you know, I can go to exhibitions with. I want to create, create or find a group of people like mine, like like me, in the same phase where I was, like in my my early motherhood um, months, and I didn't really find any group. So then I started to research, and I thought, okay, fine, I'll I'll, I'll create one. What am I going to do? But then doing my research, I realized that there was this organization, Procreate Project, that did some pilot. And then they, for some reasons, they shut them down. So I contacted them and said, like, I disagree, but you had it first. So can I talk to you? Like, how does it work? Should we work together? And then I met Diana, of course. She was the director at that time. And the beautiful thing of Procreate Project is that it always looked, and I think I still now, like a huge art organization with many people working behind, a lot of you know, like um, resources, especially financial resources behind. But at the end, it was just Diana doing everything. So when I met her, I said like, well, this is incredible. Um, should we just join forces? I come from the visual art. Uh, at that time she was a performer and an art um, 
um, producer as well, uh, but I came from the visual arts. I came from galleries experience. So I had lots of contacts, a lot of, you know, like I, I've seen things, I've done things that actually I could really put um, at the service of these organizations. So we started and, 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 and my first, first idea when I joined her, I said like, I really want a permanent space for mothers to come together and children to be there. So we had this idea of like looking for funds. So we, we received funds after two years in 2018. And the, the project was one of the last 26 finalists out of 600 projects who uh, pledged, uh, sorry, who pitched to get money from uh, the GLA. So in 2018, and I don't think it's still, I don't know if it's still going on, but the, there was this organization called Space Hive and they um, every year uh, provided um, some millions from the GLA and matched a successful um, project who would be pledged by many private funders. So it's, it's a crowdfunding basic platform, but mm -hmm. the mayor of London would match the same money you would find and give the same amount to you. So we run that year with 600 other organizations or projects and we were the final uh, 26. So we were like um, awarded as well at the, in the city of London building by the mayor and received um, in total, I think 50,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, were not enough to start yeah. off the project. We were very naive at that time, and now we know. Uh, but um, helped us out to um, well, the pandemic hit, and then there was the obviously the closure all over mm -hmm. London. Uh, we were looking for two years for a place like that, and finally we did find it in Catford. And I have to say that Lewisham uh, Lewisham Council also believed in us and believed that actually they really really wanted to be the first council to provide a service like that so they were very supportive and they still are so the building is owned by the council but managed and um rented off by a, a big um, um developer so we actually rent from the developer not directly from the council uh, but um yeah lots of interesting stands so 140 artists contacted us since then, many more outside London because they want to know how to open a mother house. Mm -hmm. So 140 to see the space, 100 of them came. The space is not for everybody because you need to be open to the idea that it is possible to work with your child around. Yeah. So I think many people, they just don't even try because we have in this, in our mind, the mentality of like, we need to separate work from uh, children and it is very difficult to think about it if you if you if you want I don't know if you have children or your own but uh, it is difficult sometimes and I need to if I have meetings or like um if I have to concentrate right yep. for you no definitely I'll have them around yeah but now they're my business card so I bring them everywhere like I, I yep. usually sometimes I nurse in meetings on zoom or like I bring them in like big museums when we have meetings but um but it is difficult so some people they have this Although they come and they see, they're kind of worried because they want their own space. Yeah. And they want all the children out. So unless they come and try out, um, it is difficult and it's not for everybody. But so many artists have been um, able to produce artworks that they couldn't. And some of our artists, for instance, um, uh, Chin Chin is one of our latest um, artists who really can, can, can talk about how much the Mother House benefited her and her relationship with her children as well. Um, she was able to produce so many artworks for one year, last year, and then she applied. So she has lost the confidence also in her artwork. She, I remember like she used to come here and say like, I don't even know if I'm an artist anymore because I don't paint anymore. I'm not, I don't have time to do anything. And there's not such a thing you, you unbecome an artist. <laughs> it's like, but many, many women, they do lose confidence because they have to take a break of like 20 years sometimes, because sometimes they don't paint or they don't go back to their practice until the children, they go to high school sometimes. And yeah. depending on how many children you have, it can be like two to 20 years. So Chin Chin was able to produce so many artworks and then she applied to one of our other platforms encouraged by us, the Mother Art Prize. And she was anonymously, because we had nothing to do with the selection, but the judges um, select the artist anonymously. They don't know the names, they don't know the CV, they just on the base, pure base on the artwork, on the picture. She was selected as one of the finalist 20 artists for the Mother Art Prize. 
of, of this edition, Mother Art Prize, and also was one of the uh, winner, the winners. And she uh, has just closed a solo online show with the Richard Sultoun Gallery, um, and sold quite a few pieces. Um, and now she has three more shows in the pipeline. And also, I've just heard a few days ago that there was some acquisitions by a famous Chinese museum. Mm. So again, providing platforms, providing space for people that otherwise would be in their on their kitchen table, and who knows if they will have at the time to keep going with their practice. I think that you know this is it's such an amazing venture because you know we we all know people that you know we all know mothers and sometimes fathers who uh, uh you know during the pandemic lockdowns obviously people got a little bit more used to having their children around them when they were doing zoom work so some people are able to do that and as you say some people aren't but it seems to me this is a different thing because it, it almost like the presence of the children is you you must learn to adapt like sounds like chin chin did to having children around creates a, a different way of working perhaps but I was what I was going to ask you is um has this been cloned your has mother house been cloned in other areas of London of of great of the United Kingdom or the rest of the world are other people now creating their own similar spaces or do you think that you're unique do you, are you did you hear that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, well, not yet, in a sense that there are so many artists that contact us and we had we we, we have so many chats um, with some people yeah. around the world, so in Europe yeah. and in America, but then nobody really... So it's not easy, I have to say. It's not an easy journey. Yeah. And yeah. if you're completely by yourself and with no resources, not like a, like, you know, a, like a budget, initial mm. budget... It, seems like a mountain to you sure. know like to go over by yourself. so again um Diana was brave enough to just jump into it and mm -hmm. just like do it with sources and then mm -hmm. only when we joined each other forces and we you know asked and looked for money uh, around then we could make it but it, it is it is not easy journey the idea is that actually we are going to sit down at some point and create guidelines and um a toolkit for other yeah. people to create more mother houses and, and then it would be amazing to have a network of mother houses in the world but not that we know there are no other um project like that we're out since a few years now so obviously people could copy us but nobody really did there mm. are some attempts uh some residences so like uh, some pop-up um places where people um group and and do things um but more and more organizations are looking into like creating communities of artists mothers or, or primary carer based primary carers so whether you're mm. father mother uh yeah. parent i don't know um but no nothing nothing similar the idea is to to yeah. to start doing it next year Paula, I, I'm, you know, I think that we've tapped into maybe another vein of, um, of, of, of potential, you know, discussion when you started talking about Chin Chin as, as, as an artist that, as, as an example of an artist that's working in Mother House and yourself. Um, I, I'm just wondering whether um, in the new academic year we could uh, revisit this, maybe, maybe with um, Claire Mander, I know is a friend of yours and works in a kind of with a similar kind of mission in in many ways, um, and and maybe get maybe get one or two of the artists in and maybe have a panel podcast where we talk because I think that this is such a worthy idea that it, it, it needs to be out there and to be developed I'm even thinking about my own art business students that we often put together at the end of the year with um they, they're just doing it now with emerging artists from various organizations whether with their understanding of art business structures and marketing um strategies they might yeah. be able to work with a couple yeah. of your artists you know uh, so so I think maybe we'll call this one to an end now I'm aware of the time passing and um but maybe look forward to in the future to inviting maybe you and Claire and 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 and, to, and maybe one or two of your artists to to have a discussion about this idea and how it how it might expand moving on moving forward yeah so so Paul be very interested because all they want to do yeah no go on 
No, they would they would be very happy because all they want to do, they're so enthusiastic and excited about yeah. what we're doing and what we did together that they are always very open and happy to talk about their experience. Absolutely. Well, let's let's we'll, we'll, to inspire we'll, other people, especially absolutely. to say like, come out, you can you can still work. You can do similar things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'll I'll be in contact and we'll 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 have a, a, a an episode in the in the maybe in the winter about about developing this idea. So um, I just on behalf of the people listening, thank you very much, Paula, for sharing these ideas. Um, you know, it, it's just tremendous. Obviously, it's it's not just an artistic idea, but it's a social idea uh, uh, for, for for mothers and and other carers of, of of young children to be able to continue their professions um, after very often, sort of soon after. Uh, giving birth um the name procreate is so apt obviously um because you know and, and and avoiding the potential of like isolation and um postnatal depression which i know is often associated with suddenly being out of your normal workspace and I, it just seems tremendous on so many levels so thank you very much um for for being with us today paula thank you very much for inviting me see you soon